So right now, ladies and gentlemen, it is star time. And we would like to bring to you the stars of our show. The fabulous, the insurmountable, the incomparable, the mighty, mighty... Sheets Movement Family, family... What's good? This is Cheats from the Cheats Movement, the number one spot for hip-hop culture and community activity. We have a very special guest. We're going one-on-one, two-man weave, if you will, but one-on-one with gubernatorial candidate Tom Periello. What's up, Tom? Thank you for having me. Tommy P is what uh, is what P, I was told. I can call you that. With that. Uh, before we go You're the too, man in charge. Before we go too far, I got to thank Diversity Th- Diversity RBA, Diversity Thrift. Uh, you just held a pretty cool town hall here. Very got the official pretty cool rating. It's is a pretty like, it's a pretty cool uh, town hall. Uh, it's kind of interesting because you're doing what a lot of Republican congressmen are not. You went out and faced the people and got some questions. Um, and uh, it, it worked out really well. And we're in a wonderful spot at Diversity RBA. So we got to thank them for allowing us. Um, very, very excited to talk to you one on one about your race, what's happening, to learn a little bit more about yourself. But the first question that I've got to lead off with, and the first question that we should all lead off with you're running for governor. Why do you want to be governor of Virginia? Well, you know, I was born and raised in Virginia, and it's always been for me this place that was about opportunity, but not equal opportunity. I grew up in Charlottesville and Almaro County, and I knew I had these amazing public schools. I had this very secure environment. Uh, I had a chance to live the dream. Uh, but literally across the railroad tracks from me, there were people that weren't getting the same chance. And for me, I've always kind of wanted to work on the issue of equal opportunity. And I've done that mainly in the nonprofit sector, just trying to make a difference directly with people. Politics always seemed kind of like BS to me. It was all about egos and who got credit for stuff. But then when you keep doing the community service side, you keep coming up against politics. And you're like, this would be so much easier if these politicians just created a little more space for justice and fairness to happen. So I got pulled into politics in 2008 with Barack Obama and inspired and chance to win a district no Democrat had won. And when I look at Virginia right now, we're just at this crossroads. You know, For me, the fact that so many Virginians came out and rejected Donald Trump, rejected that hate and bigotry, says to me, this is a very new and different Virginia than the one I grew up with in terms of how progressive it is. Mm-hmm. And I think with the right leadership, with a new generation that brings new people into the fold, we actually could shake things up and go after some things that were sort of off limits before. Um, and I think this is a really exciting opportunity. And I think people right now are hungry to be hopeful because they're so people are so freaked out, as they should be, about the Trump administration and the Trump agenda. And then, you know, it's one thing to resist, and we have to resist. It's another to say, hey, what if we could actually make things better? And that's why we're fighting for things like a living wage, a $15 an hour minimum wage, fighting for criminal justice reform, uh, fighting for two years of free community college. We want this to be a truly the land of opportunity that I grew up thinking, you know, the state invested in me. Why is it not giving everyone that same chance? So let, let me ask you a, a different way. In, in regards to why am I crazy enough to want to be right because in this day and age you're exactly right because in this day and age good people can do a lot of good and not have it kind of affected by politics right and running for public office one of the challenges that we have I, I, I truly believe is that not enough good people run for public office they can be entrepreneurs they can be nonprofit executives yep. so yep. 
What is it about you and your makeup and kind of the way you've seen life that says, you know what, I want to do good, but in turn, I want to do good in public service. Why, why take on that, 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 that challenge? You know, sometimes you don't do what's easy, you do what's right. And I think particularly for someone like myself, who's just had so many privileges in terms of race and class and educational opportunities and everything else, uh, that it can't be about what's the easy path. I just finished doing a job I loved for President Obama. I got to serve him and represent our country, negotiating a peace deal in Central Africa. Wait, this is out in Africa, yep. Yeah, and I was planning to come back and do this project that I'd wanted to do for a long time on uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission on Race in mm -hmm. Virginia. Um, you know, it was, it was sort of a passion project for a while, taking lessons from some of the work I'd done in Afghanistan and West Africa. Um, this wasn't what I wanted to do, but there's certain times where you know it's what you're, you know, what you're supposed to do, and this really is a sense of calling right now in part because I think if we do it the wrong way, we're gonna see that toxic uh, racism and hatred that's been put you know, right in the White House kind of invade everything, but with the right resistance and the right alternate vision, I think we really can put this in the rear view mirror. We could look back 10 years from now and say, this was the beginning of the, the end of basically um, our uh, republic, our norms, civility, um, some sense of the social contract, or we're going to look back 10 years from now and say that was the last gasp of a dying racist ideology and a new generation of us that come from more progressive and diverse backgrounds are ready to bust through that and do something real. So to me, that was the opportunity. To be honest, when I got in in January, mm -hmm. it was a leap of faith. I mean, I didn't know. I had this sense. It was in my heart. It was in my gut uh, that people were looking for something like this. The response has been incredible. I mean, it really has just been beyond what we expected. And so I think that that sense I had that there was a hunger out there for something like this uh, seems to be resonating with folks. Now, when you talk about kind of the challenges that we face as a nation and obviously the things that we've seen with the Trump administration and the kind of resistance into those things on a national level, that's one thing. And I do think we need uh, voices, uh, even more voices and, and citizens' voices, right, to say that... Uh, some of the things that we're seeing in the Trump administration is really kind of, you know, giving us a reservation and pause, and we've got to figure out our way to do that. When we talk about gubernatorial elections, we're talking about the state, right? We're talking about the General Assembly. We're talking about, you know, state senators and House of Delegate members. And that's a little bit of a different challenge in regards to the makeup of the General Assembly and how you navigate state challenges. So when we're looking at, obviously, the, the, the challenge – I say the challenge, but when we look at the makeup of the House, uh, which is dominated by House Republicans, I think the Republicans also uh, control the Senate. And um, how do you envision going about working in a bipartisan way or working to improve the lives of Virginians in the face of this kind of uphill battle that we've seen uh, Governor McAuliffe take? Look, on some level, wherever you are, whatever country you're in, whatever sector you're working in, uh, it's about power. Um, that was the main lesson. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but we had a debate last week. It was the oh, you can say it, Tom. It was you the, can say it. It was the 20th anniversary of the first airing of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, and so this was being. I, that does. I say, don't. I don't know what you're talking about. There you go. <laughs> All right. So, um, but it was about <laughs> challenging uh, male conceptions of power as zero-sum game, and I think in politics, which tends to be male-dominated, everything becomes very, very zero-sum. But if you look at it differently and actually talk about how you can negotiate uh, 
to better outcomes. You really can bring people together who wouldn't otherwise find common agreement. Right now, the problem in Richmond is not that the two parties disagree with each other. The, party, the problem in Richmond is that both of them too often are getting funded by the exact same people. And those are people that don't want to see change. It's people who don't want to see the minimum wage turned into a living wage, who don't want to see clean energy and energy efficiency get a shot. I mean, you talked about, like, why I'd want to be governor and how miserable it is, and it's miserable. I mean, I don't like I like to say challenge. I don't know if that said miserable per se, but I think it's definitely a challenging It is challenging, and there's a lot that's unpleasant about it, and you lose your privacy, and people say nasty things, and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, I think about these airport workers I was with last week, and this woman has three kids, and she's working two full-time jobs. One of them pays $14,000 a year. That's the minimum wage right now. Our minimum wage is lower than West Virginia's. Mm -hmm. And you look at a place like Richmond, then you go up to Northern Virginia, and you look at that cost of living, there's no way to make it on that kind of thing. Why don't we have the same sense of urgency in our politics to give that person uh, a chance to to work their way out of poverty uh, that we seem to have to protect the biggest and most powerful in the state? The way you do it, is you win elections, and you win elections on a platform of a willingness to challenge that, and you try to encourage a bunch of other candidates to run for delegate and local races and try to bring in a new generation that wants to shake things up. That's a good question. I'm, I'm actually going to go to my first Facebook question. I told uh, some of the Chiefs Movement uh, family and friends that we were going to be talking to you today, and we got a slew of online questions, but you alluded to one of them. One of the questions that was asked— Was it about Buffy? No, it was not about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> not at all. Not a lick. Um, no, but it really was about, uh, you know, what do you envision in regards to um, running for governor and being kind of in this spotlight? And if you actually, if you win, you'd be governor. Win. What do you, when you win, uh, <laughs> I got to, like, you know, hey, look, I got to, I got to, I got to, I got to play this I thing, I got to play this thing fairly down the middle. I understand. Um, what is the responsibility of someone that's governor of Virginia in regards to building up the party? One, one of the things that, uh, for better or for worse, one of the things that they say came out of the Tea Party movement was that there were more candidates getting involved at the Board of Supervisors level, the City Council level, the school board level, and that was the farm system, if you will, that now when those candidates are running for governor, they're running for Congress, they're running for Senate. Um, I don't know if it's a fair criticism, but I will say this. It seems as if uh, the Democratic Party hasn't done that, and they don't really, you know, there's not a lot of investment uh, in the in the kind of the local local elected seats, what is the responsibility of someone that w- would be governor to to make sure you're building up a strong farm system? I think the governor has a massive responsibility to be essentially the top ally for the party. Um, but I think it has to be one that recognizes the importance and the role of the grassroots across the state as well. It shouldn't be it should be top down in, st- in terms of support, but not necessarily in terms of direction. You want to continue to have a partnership where people all over the state are being uh, fostered. I do think Governor McAuliffe has worked very, very hard uh, for Democrats across the state. I think what we're seeing now, though, is a new opportunity because you see a lot of people coming into the fray who either haven't been politicized before, haven't been excited about the Democratic Party before, et cetera. This is an opportunity for us to run the kind of campaign that makes them think of themselves as Democrats, and then we try to build the party uh, around that. You know, there's a lot of hemming and hawing, understandably, about whether President Obama in 2009 should have been moved his campaign separate from the DNC or in the mm-hmm. DNC. You know, those are those are tough decisions and easy in hindsight. But I think here uh, we want to do that. But, you know, I came up 
really believing more in movements than in politicians. Mm -hmm. And I think we want to respect that division at the same time. I grew up believing that it was movements that changed the world. Uh, the one I obviously was raised on the oral tradition of was the civil rights movement in Virginia. Mm -hmm. um, and politicians show up to kind of push it the last mile. So movements change our sense of what's possible and then politicians have to work within the sense of what's possible. But when you have a politician who's willing to push the outer limit of what's possible and movements that are smart about changing it, then you get there. And that's, I think, what we had in the heyday between LBJ and King was King and a movement more broadly that was willing to not accept uh, that this wasn't enough. Even after they got the Civil Rights Act, they were still saying, no, that's not enough. Mm -hmm. Voting rights is about power. We have to get the Voting Rights Act. But LBJ was trying to do the war on poverty. He's got Vietnam sure. going on. He's like, back off. And King is like, we can't. This is everything. So that's, you know, when I think about where we want to be next year, I hope there's a movement energy around the state. But movements are always going to want to be independent. If you think about... Um, you know, uh, the inequality movement is always going to be out there as it should be, pushing the envelope further than probably what most politicians, including myself, can do. And that's tough. And when so, and you mentioned civil rights, and I, and I want to bring that up uh, in this regard to trying to figure out what do you view as kind of the biggest civil rights challenge of our time right now that we're facing? You know, I, I hate when we set one against another in a hierarchy. I do think in Virginia right now, probably uh, the criminal justice system, um, including uh, the prison complex that we have, um, is one that people will look back on and say, how the hell did they think that was okay? Um, we have one of the most repressive criminal codes in the country in terms of uh, only $200 of value constitutes felony larceny. We provide very little indigent legal defense once people get in trouble. Um, we have people dying in, in prisons in mm -hmm. parts of the state, um, tragically. Uh, and, you know, I think this is a system where we continue to spend billions of dollars to incarcerate people when a fraction of that spent trying to give people an opportunity um, uh, to succeed would be uh, something better for the economy and certainly better from a human standpoint. I think the victories on LGBTQ equality are incredibly significant when you think about 50% of trans teens today considering some form of suicide or self-harm. The moral urgency of that is very clear. Mm. Um, and uh, and many, many others. We've seen attacks on uh, women's reproductive rights here in the state, every single legislature that comes across. Um, but to me, I think, uh, you know, in terms of Virginia's history, uh, the original sin continues to be uh, the one that, that pervades so much of our system. Uh, and that's uh, you know, and I think it's important when we think about it, and this was part of what the Truth Commission was going to be about, is, you know, I think sometimes we too easily jump from sort of slavery to today or slavery Jim Crow to today, <laughs> and, you know, it's really missing a few steps. Sure. You know, sure. missing Reconstruction, missing President uh, Wilson, a Virginian, deciding to fire African Americans from almost the entire federal workforce, mm -hmm. which was the pathway to the middle class. Uh, the GI Bill being exclusionary, all those tickets that, you know, my family had and others. And then today you see that the median uh, wealth, the African-American median family is worth one-tenth of that of the median white family in Virginia. Mm. So, you know, these things uh, continue to have a legacy today. Then that's really important. So how do you combat when people say, this is all in the past, we're trying to move forward, let's get over it, when you're talking about race and race being one of the kind of lynchmans of, how we're still dealing with inequity in American society. But you hear a lot, especially in 2017, you hear a lot of, 
well, when can we just move forward? How, how do we go about kind of reconciliation, racial reconciliation, equality when you talk about things like public education, the criminal justice system? How do you go about such a daunting task? I think we have to do two things at the same time. One, we have to win um, for all of the discussions. <laughs> yeah, like that's step uh, one. And I don't just mean me. I mean, you know, progressives and Democrats in general for all of the problems and times the party hasn't been that strong. The fact of the matter is, while we continue to try to reach the dream of getting over all of this because we've actually we do have a more just society. Part of how we do that is to be in a position to actually protect vulnerable communities, uh, whether that's attacks on refugees and immigrants today or the things that we're talking about. The second is, I think, you know, you, you can go out and build coalitions and look for opportunities. I've been spending some time in the areas of the opioid crisis today, and we're seeing— Which, I don't want to cut you off, but you said something in the town hall that I don't think I've ever heard a person running for public office say— when you're categorizing the opioid ep- epidemic, and it was something to this, and I'm paraphrasing, but it was to the extent when you said it's a shame that now people are starting to look at it as a public health crisis because a lot of the people that are f- affected are white. Back in the crack epidemic, yeah. uh, everybody looked at it as a criminal justice problem, like we got to get these criminals off the street. And we realized that, you know, hindsight 2020, you realize that's a giant mistake in the way that, you know, you kind of institutionalize a, a a whole lot of people that look a certain type of way. But I don't think I've ever actually heard a, a person running for office, especially, I could be wrong, but I, the way you categorized um, how we're dealing with the opioid epidemic, because a lot, because I think race plays a major factor in that, uh, is something that stood out. I wonder, I mean, how did that come to your attention in regard, because a lot of public officials would just say, well, we just realized it was wrong, and now we've <laughs> got to take a different fact. But the fact that you kind of understand that the makeup of the people that are being affected now are different than the makeup of the people that were affected in the uh, 80s and 90s and when you're talking about, you know, like crack cocaine, basically, and mandatory yeah. minimums. How, how did you come to that, or is it just something that you've always known? Oh, I mean, look, I, I think that, uh, first of all, I think talking about this stuff honestly is important. I will tell you this. Black people have known that for a long time. Yes. I'm <laughs> just letting you know. <laughs> That's something what? that black people were really on. We were like, wait a second. They're going to yeah. deal with this differently. Woke up woke. I understand. So the I think that the um, – look, it, it's not hard to see it, and I do think it's generational. I think those of us, again, who've come up in a slightly more progressive and diverse time, but it was a lot of learning along the way too. I mean it's peeling back layers of privilege for me at every every given age, and there's still a lot more I have to learn. But as I said, you know, as a child, it was pretty easy. There was literally a set of railroad tracks. Uh, mm-hmm. My neighborhood was almost all white and all middle class and upper middle class. You crossed over. It was all African-American. It was all low income. We were going to the same elementary school, but we were starting out at very different points, and mm-hmm. people got on very different trajectories. Um, you know, I've told this story before, but it was a defining thing for me. I mean, I was basically a hyperactive kid. Um, and you know, I was bouncing around and because of my privileges, teachers told me that made me dynamic, uh, that that made me a leader, but I'm well aware that if I was, uh, you know, poor and black, it would have gotten me sent to the principal's office today. And when we see it with nearly hundred percent suspension rates are for students of color in some counties in Virginia. So as we look at that kind of new Jim Crow dynamic and see that these things are systematic, that these things did not come out of nowhere, we have to call it out for the racial history that's there, but we also now understand understand that for a variety of reasons there are a bunch of white people getting caught up in it as well mm-hmm. you see this with the laws that criminalize poverty which were almost all put in place uh, with racial intent back in the day uh, but now you see it affecting and capturing a, a larger net of folks well then let's use that as an opportunity reform I don't think the answer to that is 
necessarily to go and lecture people about how they don't, you know, you acknowledge that right. this is something that you uh, can only do so much as a white white dude, right? Like, but no, you can only you can only do so much when you got no. But this is something that probably has changed to me over the last twenty years. Mm-hmm. Before you know, there was something to to giving the purist crusade and giving the lecture about how you know racist that person is, etc. You call it out, but you also try to get things done. It doesn't help anyone who's getting caught up in the system for me to miss an opportunity to build that coalition. So I acknowledge it uh, that, yes, we are now talking about criminal justice reform and decriminalizing poverty uh, and perhaps even just decriminalizing some drugs uh, in Virginia um, because it's affecting more white communities in areas that are represented by uh, Republican leadership. But let's not miss the chance to do the right thing just because people are coming to the party a little bit late. Um, so, you know, here we continue to see it. I, for example, believe that uh, there's a strong argument for medical marijuana and some level of decriminalization in the state. And it's not just that was another very popular Facebook question of <laughs> the ones I got. <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm just going to let you go and, and, and get, what, what is your take on medical marijuana and decriminalization of marijuana? Yeah, I think we need to go in that direction. And I think we're seeing some bipartisanship uh, in that because of the way it's affecting um, uh, different communities, including whiter communities, um, including some affluent kids. But of course, it's, not, it's still not affecting them equally. If you look mm. at arrest rates, if you look at sentencing rates, there's still massive uh, disparities uh, based on race. And that's a huge problem. Um, you know, one of the things that freaks me out uh, in Virginia is that we, ha- we used to be one of the highest percent of sentencing, uh, capital punishment sentencing mm. in the state. And part we're of it number, was okay, yeah, but yeah, yeah, we were right. I think we're, we're number, number two. two. Texas was number one when Virginia was number two. And then we just got people lawyers. Basically, people didn't have real legal defense. We got people lawyers, and we've dropped down to almost zero on sentencing. Mm-hmm. So when I think about that, I'm glad that's happening in a capital punishment context. But imagine if everyone getting a misdemeanor or a felony charge was also getting uh, adequate legal defense. How many of those people uh, would be getting off the hook in the way that you know? Uh, kids that I went to middle school and high school with did um, when they got in trouble. Let me ask you about economic opportunity and entrepreneurship um, because it's it's hot right now and and we always talk a lot about lifting people out of poverty. But one of the things we don't really talk about as much is people becoming entrepreneurs. It's that still seems to be a barrier when we look at like who's you know running the new startups and all that stuff. Uh, seems to be a little bit more difficult than kind of when you talk about, oh, lifting people out of poverty. Talk to me about uh, economic opportunity overall, uh, especially for when you're talking about um, minorities in urban culture. Um, and also one thing that's always been kind of a thorn in the state side, and you'll be if elected governor, you'll be in charge of the state, uh, minority spending and uh, the numbers of kind of, you know, support for minority businesses. How do we encourage much more economic opportunity. How do we encourage more entrepreneurship? How do we cover? Uh, how do we kind of tackle this thorn in the state side about minority spending and minority hiring? So one of the things we did on the campaign, um, in addition to putting out a, a very strong platform on criminal justice reform, was we put out a paper on the racial wealth gap, and that's something that most politicians don't want to talk about. I mentioned earlier the difference in the in the median wealth of uh, African American and white families, um, and also looking at the issue of minority business and entrepreneurship, because this in some ways threatens consolidated power more than talking about poverty. Um, and a good example of this right now is in Virginia Beach. 
where we came out and supported a racial disparity study in the contracting in the city that showed that they were not meeting even the very uh, low threshold they were supposed to meet for minority-owned businesses. Um, Others have been slow to get on that train because that's something that directly threatens uh, concentrated economic interests in the area, right? Because there is some zero-sum game there. If that contract's going to the minority business, it's not going to the other business. Um, But this is a huge pathway uh, into the middle class and also into political power is whether or not uh, you are actually developing a wealth base. Uh, there's a difference between being you know, rich and being wealthy, uh, as some have said, and that's an important piece of it. The other one, which I think we, uh, you know, we've tried to talk a lot about in the campaign, is giving more respect and encouragement to moving into some of the trades. Mm. We've basically tracked people on college track and non-college track and treated the second one as inherently a failure. But the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people coming out of right. trade apprenticeship Lengthy, programs. long, successful careers. Exactly, making yeah. more money with yeah, less yeah. debt than people coming out of college, but we've told people that's a bad track. Plus, a lot of those people end up owning their own business, and then they become civic leaders, and then they have real power in the community. So I think we absolutely want to be talking about that. Let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, we got a, a, a little bit Uh-oh. a little bit of time left, not much, but we're going to shift gears a little bit. And uh, tell me this. If you had to name two personal heroes, one in the past or past tense, you know, um, or and then one kind of modern day hero that you would say that that guy's a hero, and then in the in the past tense, who who would your heroes be? Mm. Great question. Um, so one of my favorite figures is Bayard Rustin uh, from the Civil Rights Movement. So mm. he was really the guy behind the scenes, sure. um, in part because he was a you know gay ex con, uh, very controversial figure. But he was communist, really right? yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but here was a guy who really was, the, in some ways, the, the intellectual powerhouse behind the concepts of nonviolence that brought first to Coretta Scott King and then to King, uh, really organized the March on Washington, had come out of more of a labor background. And I'm always fascinated by people like that who never really got their day in the sun. Right. They aren't necessarily known by everyone in the movement, but really, in some ways, uh, you know, lived an incredible life uh, of that. You know, he's coming in and out and in the trunks of cars getting snuck in sure. to come in and do the strategy and the rest um, and uh, really just been uh, always found him as an example of someone uh, just just quite fascinating in that way and um, before you switch to these uh, when you say that one of the other people that stand out because uh, I you know just because I just saw it, there was a Academy and Academy Award nominated film uh, that was reflecting uh, the life and some of the retro uh, kind of thoughts of James Baldwin. Did you see this? Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, it's a, great it's an amazing film, but it was very much that Baldwin's probably more uh, front center than uh, Bayard Rustin. But um, uh, but but it just kind of reminded me of that's kind of one of the things when you're talking about if you tell accurate history accurately. Yeah. Had it been on the other side, everyone would have known who you know who this individual was. Yeah. But but that's interesting. So that's that's yeah. in the past. Who do you, who's your modern so, day? Just one other comment on that. One yeah. of the reasons that I thought uh, Selma was such a transformative film when it came out was that, you know, and I think it's not a coincidence that you got more of this approach from an African American female director mm-hmm. was that it wasn't really a biopic of King, it was a biopic of a movement. Mm-hmm. And you saw, I mean, Rustin doesn't even really get the sh- his name mentioned until later. You have many of the women from the movement who don't normally get mentioned so it was definitely about king but it was really about almost the movement as an as a as an organic figure and i think you know we have this tendency to to 
to hold up one person, usually a male, usually a white male, to tell that story. And I think in that case, it was such a more dynamic and I think underappreciated film uh, for that reason. I mean, the obvious bridge between the two is John Lewis, who's still a living right, hero. Right, Lewis, and, Lewis and, won and, from and, Selma. There's yeah. a winner in Selma. Yes. yes. <laughs> John Lewis is the winner out of Selma. Winner in Selma right. and in life. Because um, there's a whole new, uh, like you're saying, there's a whole new um, population of people that, that like, some people grew up knowing John Lewis and knowing his history, but yeah. I, don't, I don't think a lot of people outside. I mean, post Selma is definitely a John Lewis boom, right? In, yeah. In regards yeah, to yeah. people that know his, his yeah. historical context. And I got to serve with him in Congress, which was really one of the the coolest things I'll ever have to to experience. And Very cool. you know, for me, the first campaign I worked on in the ninth grade was Doug Wilder getting elected as the first black governor, and that was you know a defining moment for me. Sure. And, um, but you know, then there are a lot of folks uh, that I've I've gotten to work with overseas who've risked their lives every day. Zainab Bangora in Sierra Leone, who stood up to multiple armed rebel groups to try to bring peace to her country, and uh, now fights for gender against gender-based violence around the world. Just lots of lots of heroes out there. Very nice. Again, on, the, on more of this theme before we uh, before we get you out of here, Chiefs Movement has always been and will continue to be a hip hop culture site. Uh, we you've gone easy on me though. I we've noticed. gone not, not until now, until now, because we uh, definitely truly believe that uh, hip hop culture is the most dominant culture in American society. Um, and so, and I see that because when I, you know, kind of talk to high school students, and you know, you go on a college campus, their 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 hip hop culture is the dominant culture, and all of those. So, and and, you're, and let's just be frank. Uh, if if Wikipedia is right, you're 42. Yes. I'm 38, so we're not that far off. So you grew up in a time here in which you have seen the golden era of hip hop music and the ascension of what has been. So as we go through this, growing up in Charlottesville. I mean, you may not have. What, what was the? What was your first, like, real moment where you realized like hip hop music is a real thing? Oh God, that's a tough one. Um, so probably for that, like, so I was on the conscious hip hop side of things. So it was like Arrested Development, <laughs> Tribe Called Quest, nice. Layla. Uh, and then that. you know, Lauren Hill comes in, and I was I was convinced I was going to be married to Lauren Hill. So one of my greatest uh, failures you in life. You realize uh, Lauren Hill has her own challenges. I do, I do. <laughs> that, right, right, some right, of those came out a little later. Sure. Right, right, right. You know, she became, sure. a, she became a grandmother sure. a couple weeks yeah, ago, yeah, yeah. Uh, actually. So, classic, um, classic. you know, that was an era. I was definitely weaned on more classic classic rock growing up and so that right. came in um salt and pepper tlc so it was like female hip-hop artists because i was actually really um uh thrown or turned off by the misogyny in hip-hop so like okay. female hip-hop artists like were my gateway in and then uh then had a, a conversion uh, actually when uh, i still remember it uh with the the weekend that tupac had been shot uh, I was with a group of friends, and I was giving the kind of negative review, hey, this guy, you know, uh, the rape charges, et cetera. And then we ended up in this thing. They were like, you got to just listen to these two albums. And I was like, I'll give it a try. And so, is, oh, you said, so been, did you listen to a Tupac album or, or a big, is there a definitive hip-hop album that you've heard? Uh, I mean, plenty that I've heard, but Death Around the Corner was by Tupac was, was one of the last ones before he went on Death Row Records. Okay. And so there was always a sense of like him still basically being pretty conscious before Suge Knight, and then he comes in and realizes that really the scarier he can make Tupac, the more he'll right. sell albums to white people. Uh, <laughs> and so there was always this tension in what it meant to keep it real in hip-hop where the more that was defined, the more I noticed that like it was white suburban kids that were buying the records. There was always that 
weird sure. definition. It was like the Dave Chappelle show thing later, right? Yeah, yeah. Were the wrong people laughing. Um, so, you know, always been a complicated uh, dynamic within that. Um, but, yeah. Really so as a classic rock guy, is there, is there a definitive, who's your, like, music-wise, across, don't, oh, across look, the Oh, the Run DMC Aer- Aerosmith album and the Beastie Boys album was when I was in middle school. So right. those were, like, real kind of those breakthrough the... moments. Um, I think of that more as rap than hip-hop. So I guess it's like that transition, <laughs> that transition out. But um, What do you do? Like obviously, we just kind of talked to before. ensure that that part of the interview never airs. No, that's gonna yeah. air. That's like, <laughs> and here's the thing: I'm doing all I can in my life because I am on record as much as possible saying that I think Tupac is overrated. I mean, I'm I've had uh, see some people in the so room. So you're saying my first head. instinct was right on this? No, 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 no. I, 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 it's it's one of those things where um, I may again Jay Z, Nas, Big. Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul. I'm an AZ. I'm an East Coast hip hop fanatic in that sense. And, and when Jay Z and Nas me, had beef, did you have a side on that? Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, Nas won the battle. Jay Z wins the war, and that's what <laughs> I mean. That's what happened. Nas won the battle. Jay Z continues to win the war. Like you know, but I, I do. I, I always say, and I always get uh, a lot of uh, crap about about how my my feelings towards Tupac. And now there could be a thing. I, I've got a brother who's a big Tupac fan. I grew up as a Biggie house. You know, I'm a Biggie guy. Uh, but that could be just some simple sibling rivalry. I never really worked out in my mind. If you but, need a moment, we can. We you can know, give you a moment. with that said, um, you're always on the go now, and obviously um, up until the uh, to the election date. It's going to be go, 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 go. What is something that people um, that may not know about you, like how do you like to re- like unwind? How do you like to relax? What, what do you kind of take solace in? <sighs> so um, I'm a big Texas Hold'em fan. So one of the few chances for me to relax is get together and play cards with friends. Um, and uh, I'm trying to be healthier this time when I was in Congress. <laughs> I put on about 25 pounds in two years. It's a lot of burgers. Uh, it's a lot of beer. So, um, you know, trying to be a little healthier this time. I'm also older, as you noted. Thank you for... Uh, no, I mean, you know, look, I'm, we're, we're right there. We're there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you got to, you know, you got to stay healthy. And uh, um, what is it? It's Dead Prez that has Be Healthy. You know that song by Dead Prez? Yeah, you know um, what? We might edit make... that part out because <laughs> if you're quoting Twitter, Dead Prez in an interview, I feel like the other side, like Ed Gillespie is going to be like, hmm, let's figure that well, out. They're, they're literally trying to make eating lentils sound cool. Like, I yeah. can't pull that off. No, they, they kind of Dead pull Prez off, makes a lot of things sound yeah, cool. Yeah. But no, but that, that's good. But you just, again, is there, is there, the Texas Hold'em is a good answer in the sense of um, you always try to find um, – things when you're on the road like this when you're out talking to people uh last thing and i'll leave you with this in regard and i'll let you leave with this in regards to kind of the message of uh the tom periello campaign um if if you were giving me the quick elevator pitch of why um i should throw my support behind you why should people throw their support behind you uh what is it that what is that void that you're filling right now I think that uh, we just want everyone to have a fair shot, and I think the reason people don't get it is because politicians are too scared to challenge entrenched power, 
And if there's one thing you can see from my life, it's that I'm fearless to take on um, concentrated power, whether that's sneaking across borders to challenge dictators overseas or whether that's fighting special interests here. In my two years in Congress, we took on the health insurance lobby, the big pharma lobby, fossil fuel, Wall Street. Um, and, you know, I got rewarded for that by people saying I had political courage. And we just set the bar for political courage way too low. Um, so I think where we run a political campaign that's actually willing to fight for everyday folks and call out injustice where we see it, call out racism where we see it, uh, call out missed opportunities where we see it, um, you know, that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to run a campaign worthy of people who don't actually have 45 minutes to spare in their day to go vote. I want to make it worth them taking 45 minutes to go out and vote for me because they believe that I'm going to fight for people like them every day uh, in Richmond. I think my background has shown that. I've been in the struggle for 20 years for justice and fairness, mostly in the nonprofit sector, occasionally in politics and getting to serve President Obama. That's what we're going to keep fighting for. I, now, now that you said that, I do have to ask, would you expand, uh, would you support expanded voting? Like the fact that we have one day to vote uh, seems crazy. There's lines wrapped around the corner. Like, you know, grandma has her, like her wheelchair. Like, is there something you can do about the one day voting? We are. We've actually gone. I think this is where we need to think, uh, more boldly and get on offense. We've gone to the technology community in Virginia and said, we want Virginia to be the first 100% voter participation state. Uh, let's get rid of this voter suppression crap and just get to the goal. We should want every single citizen to vote. So, yes, we want to restore uh, rights for those who've had them taken away. I'll continue what Governor McAuliffe has done on that. That's another Facebook question. I didn't even ask. You answered that. That was um, another Facebook question, though. Yeah. No, it's been a good program, but we should have fewer people getting those rights taken away in the first place because we're breaking the school-to-prison pipeline and we're getting rid of some of these new Jim Crow laws that are on the books. So if we go and address those things, but the, the fact of the matter is we should be making it easier for, you know, a suburban two-income couple of whatever race to vote in McLean. They're, you know, if you're uh, in a situation where you're working two jobs, you have four soccer practices for your kids, you've got a choir practice, a civic organization, the idea that we're still basically voting the way we did in the 18th century is crazy, where on one day you get in your horse and buggy and you go down the street to one polling place and put your vote in. We don't need to vote that way. I've worked in conflict zones that have more modern election systems mm. than we have here. Uh, but the only reason to do it is to rig the system. And I think we've got to um, we've got to call it what it is, say, let's have 100 percent of people vote, whatever gets us there. If it's same day registration, if it's two weeks open voting, I don't care what it is. We should just create the conditions uh, to get Virginia, the birthplace of American democracy, but also the birthplace of American slavery to be the first one to get to 100 percent voter participation. And there we have it. This is with Tom Periello, who I call Tom P., or he said, Congressman, if you want to relax. <laughs> that was, that's how it is. Um, this has been one-on-one -on -one with the Cheats Movement, man. Thanks for doing this. Thank tell you. everybody. Thanks for the movement. I will tell uh, – I won't let you do it. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure people know at the at the end of this to where you can follow Tom Perriello. Actually, I'll let you do it. TomForVirginia.com. TomForVirginia.com, or is it social media? What's, what's your social media of, of choice? Is it Instagram, Snapchat? Twitter is my drug. Uh, Twitter. Twitter is my – yes, at Tom Perriello. Uh, we do have Facebook and other things, but I am mainly a consumer of Twitter. Okay. So you and this is one thing that you and the current president do have in common is Twitter is the top top choice to communicate to the people. I am much less likely to use <laughs> all caps, but uh, yes. Well, yeah, exactly. We didn't even – well, I mean, I mean, in this, this has been a lot of fun. Hopefully we'll do it again. Um, We'd love to come back. Uh, while you're uh, – 
on your way uh, doing this campaign. I really appreciate everyone at Diversity RVA. Uh, make sure you come and check the place out. I got to thank my girl Jess, who's uh, doing some of the uh, photography and video work. Uh, and until next time, Richmond, all the wonderful people at the Tom Perio uh, campaign that set this up. Uh, but until next time, Richmond, we see it.